welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby, and this is my co-host Morgan. Hello. This week we're going to be talking about the movie Atonement, uh, directed by Joe Wright and adapted from the book by Ian McEwan. I was really interested to watch this because I've kind of been meaning to, but it's the sort of film that I have to be forced to watch because it's upsetting, serious and historical. <laughs> and also, <laughs> as a British person, I've already been exposed to probably far too many pieces of media that take place in World War II. So I'm slightly, you know, I, I had the push from Morgan, but I'm very glad that I did because it's an excellent film. And also Morgan has read the book, so we've got some insights there. Um, Kind of before we go any further, I am going to give a spoiler warning. This is obviously not like a spoiler film. But we are going to talk about what happens at the end. Um, so I hope that you've all done your homework and yes. read slash watched this movie. Um, yes. So Morgan, can you give like a kind of a really quick recap to remind people what it's about? So basically this is uh, divided into a few sections. It starts off uh, as a sort of great house film, although they're not lords and ladies, kind of um, upper upper class family. It sort of revolves around a, a dinner that's happening, and it, Keira Knightley and Saoirse Ronan play sisters of this family, and James McAvoy plays the sort of like son of sort of servants who has been taken in slightly by the family and was they paid for his education, and now he and Keira Knightley are at Cambridge together, but don't talk, but they have this romance going on, and it's all very tempestuous. Um, and then something bad happens, and then it goes to sort of World War II. But basically, Saoirse Ronan falsely accuses him of having raped uh, another sort of teenage girl at this dinner. Um, he goes off to prison, and then to get out of prison, winds up enrolling in the army to go to war, and then winds up at Dunkirk. And Saoirse Ronan's character, Bryony, winds up... Uh, becoming a nurse like her older sister to sort of repent for having done this terrible thing. Uh, and there's lots of drama from there. So I saw this film in 2007 when it came out and I've seen it a couple times since, but first I would like to hear about your experience of watching it because I've had like 10 years to think about this movie and you saw it for the first time yesterday. So why don't you start us off with your thoughts? Yeah, I saw it less than 24 hours ago. So forgive me, (laughs) listeners, if I do not have as much insight as expert Morgan. (laughs) Um, So I think something that would be quite indicative of my uh, enjoyment of this film, which I loved, is that... um, I knew basically nothing about this film except I'm aware of Keira Knightley's iconic green dress. I know that a lot of people are extremely fond of James McAvoy crying in this film and then kind of the low-rent James McAvoy crying film is X-Men. So this is like the high echelon if you're into that very specific but popular (laughs) genre. Um, And I also knew that there was this really famous Dunkirk scene, which I think we may have discussed in one of our previous podcasts, where it's sort of, you know, this extremely huge, complex, um, expansive shot where they're kind of following characters for a good 10 minutes. But apart from that, I didn't really know what it was. I was like, probably it's a romance where someone or both people die at the end and I'm going to be sad. Um, And then about halfway through the film, I was like, oh, my God, this movie's about atonement. Oh my god, it's about a theme. Good job. Good yeah, job. I know, right? I got it eventually. Um, but no, I was. 
it was very stressful. Like, I wish that I'd seen this in the cinema where I didn't have control over the pause button <laughs> because I had kept having to pause and be like, oh my God, like about five times throughout this film, which is not how you should be watching something that's this immersive. But I don't have, I don't have self-control. <laughs> I was really excited to see Benedict Cumberbatch playing such an unpleasant character because I kind of feel like I just would like to see him play a wider variety of roles and also not be playing leading man roles because he's great in this in a role that he's there for maybe three minutes he's gross he's so creepy he plays um the kind of pedophile rapist and he's really and also because of his appearance like he kind of physically is looks like the stereotype of a creepy posh english man (laughs) which is like i'm not saying that's what he is in real life but like he has the correct face shape and like mustache when he has a mustache to very easily fulfill that stereotype um so wonderful casting and a very disturbing performance like when i tweeted that i was watching this film like four or five people just quoted benedict cumberbatch's line at me about him like asking the girl to bite a piece of chocolate and i was just like oh my god like when it arrived very disturbing bad so bad yeah (laughs) but i haven't seen all of joe wright's movies i've seen um i've seen pride and prejudice which obviously i enjoyed but like it was many years ago so i don't remember very well and hannah which i've seen like four or five times and it's kind of the joe wright film that you'd expect me to enjoy because it's about a teen assassin um (laughs) but i mean obviously this was like the best of those films but i kind of kept thinking all the way through how good joe wright is at filming skin yeah which he has a very specific way of filming close-up shots of people's hands and faces and skin and sort of the way people touch each other in a very evocative way and it's also it's kind of natural but also very romantic which i think is something that maybe most filmmakers who are making a historical romance you'd think that there'd be a lot of sort of subtle repressed longing skin shots but it turns out that joe wright is the king of that and he's the one who can do that extremely well and everyone else is just a pretender (laughs) well i've always thought the scene where um james mcavoy is like in the bath and then trying to write the letter to uh apologize to karen knightley for like a strange encounter they've had in a fountain um is like unbelievably well done in a number of ways but it's like incredibly sensual and he is like peak beauty the like james mcavoy's never looked more beautiful in his entire life than at that scene and i every time i watch it i'm like a man directed this like a straight man like this is so amazing like what what did he do what did he have in his mind like it's just so fascinating to me and i think that does kind of tie into that just sense of having some kind of awareness of what is required for the story that you're telling and i think one of the things that this movie does really well is be aware that it is a romance and that for a romance it should probably be made for not exclusively women but also partially for women <laughs> Right. Yeah. I mean, like... it's very much sort of not geared towards the male gaze. And also no. on the theme of me realising halfway through that the film is about atonement, it's sort of toggling over from the idea of thinking of this movie as a historical film and then being like, oh, right, I'm experiencing literary fiction right now. Because yeah. it requires a different type of imagination that I think yeah. a lot of people don't. I mean, obviously, kind of in like interpersonal drama films set in the present day, that's sort of the point is that it's all about feelings. But like when it gets into another genre, you're far less likely to find a filmmaker who is using that type of imagination to make a whole film that's about getting into people's heads 
and figuring yeah. out precisely what they're feeling and then externalizing that and it, this film was just so good at that especially kind of the way it you know it shows certain scenes from different points of view and then it re-examines what happened in that scene yeah so what did you think about the ending um i so um i didn't dislike it but it I wasn't like wild about it either. So the scene towards the end when Bryony, the younger sister, goes to visit her sister to apologize to her and James McAvoy is there and he's returned from the war. Like the first time he showed up on screen, I was like, oh, this is amazing. It's sort of like a slightly surreal ghost because he's not actually there. And then when it turned out he actually was in the scene, I was sort of like, I couldn't quite accept it. Like it didn't feel like it was right because it felt like one of them should be dead. And we didn't see him return, so I was sort of like, I was sort of like, this doesn't seem real. So when you get to the final um, scene, which is set like in the present day and has Bryony talking about writing this fictionalized account of her sister and Robbie reuniting, I was like, okay, this makes far more sense, and I far prefer this. And it's sort of, I mean, I wanted them to be dead, <laughs> but I, I, even though it was like really painful. Yeah. So I saw this. I was seventeen when I saw this movie. And my friend and I used to go to, like, the same multiplex, like, the closest one to go see, like, all these films. And we, it was, like, a 20-minute drive back to my house. And so we would always, like, rehash the movies on the way back. And I do not remember ever seeing a movie that, like, made me, probably us, but I mostly remember my own fury, like, more angry than the end of this movie. Like, I just remember sitting in her car and, like, ranting and raving about how much, how angry I was, the whole thing. Like, I was just, I was so pissed off. I was so (laughs) mad. So were you emotionally dissatisfied or narratively critiquing what happened <laughs> probably both presumably like, <laughs> both and i actually in general think that the first two thirds of this movie are basically perfect and then the last third doesn't really work at all so i really like roma like a a lot and i think she's totally miscast in this movie like she and Saoirse Ronan just don't make any sense together to me as like, like as an aged up version, she doesn't really make any sense. And I think her performance is quite odd. And I think the quality she has as an actor that really stand out is she had this sort of warmth and authority. And the whole point of that character is that she's kind of an ambivalent presence. Um, And so for me watching that section, she just feels very off and not convincing. And I also think just from a writing perspective, that section is not great. And so I was already kind of like less into it and then it got to the end and I was like, fuck this. Like, I hate this. It, just, <laughs> it felt really cheap to me. And it's very hard to pull off twist endings like that. Like, it's just, it's a very tricky thing. So I was very kind of annoyed. So um, because when I was watching it, I was so mistrustful of James McAvoy returning. Yeah. That I was just like, this doesn't feel real to me. So it felt satisfying to discover that it wasn't real. And I was like, okay, the... Yeah. They shouldn't be alive. As I recall, this was many years ago, I didn't, I was kind of not into it, but I felt like because they had done it and then to just be like, oh, by the way, they're actually dead. I just didn't feel like it was executed in a way that was persuasive, which I still don't think it is. I don't think this movie really works, even though I really love it. But so after having seen it a few years later, I wound up reading the book um, because everyone loves this book. And it was totally fascinating to do that because I think the novel is 
perfect. I think it's one of my favorite kind of contemporary novels. I really recommend it to anyone who has seen the film and not read the book or anyone who's listening to this who hasn't seen the film for some reason, because there's just a massive added layer to the novel, which is that the whole thing is kind of about the act of fiction and the act of writing. So in the movie where she is in the hospital and has the um, the thing that she's writing, like the story about them at the fountain, that's in the book. It's so like you read the thing that she's written and there's this whole thing about her submitting it to a publisher and getting feedback back. And so literally the thing that you are reading is the, like the whole book is the book that she has written. And because I knew the ending starting it, I could see all the foreshadowing and it was so fascinating and so well done. And then you get to the end and it's like her note at the end about this being the book that she's written. And I think because of the nature of what he was trying to do in that novel, which is to say a lot about like what fiction is doing and the art of writing. So basically like you feel quite upset about the fact that they're dead at the end, but the version that you've read is the version that you've read and these people didn't actually exist. So like which version is more real, right? Like there's just a lot of stuff going on. It's very meta textual. Um, and I don't think that can translate to the screen. Like, I don't think that. They yeah. Could Cause I was it. very curious right. once I got to the end, cause there were certain, like after I finished watching it, there were certain points where I kind of looked back and thought this is like a narrative device that Ramola Garay's character has used in fiction because like when she was speaking to the french man in the hospital who was dying yeah i was after i finished it, i was looking back and i was like okay she's written this scene because it's a good narrative point to tie things together but it didn't actually happen like that in real life and it was also well, a good example of the type of scene you'll see in a movie like this that fits too well but i absolutely understand what you're talking about the book because i've not read that and that sounds like it would just work better than you could possibly do in a film like you can't make a film that is that meta and make it also be an accessible romance film that a lot of people are going to watch. Right. And like the first two thirds are a perfect adaptation of the book. Like I was reading it and I hadn't seen the movie in a while, but I remember three and thinking like, Oh my God, they totally did it. Like the descriptions of that house and the stuff going on between the characters, the first part of the book are it's so perfectly evoked. And then the World War II stuff, like obviously they couldn't put it all in, but it's really remarkable. And then you get to that third part and there's all this stuff that you're reading her writing and you're reading the correspondence and like, you can't put that in a movie and then get into all this complicated stuff at the end. And I think they had to sort of figure out like, okay, how do we do this now? And it is really complicated and difficult and i don't think there was a way for them to do it better than they did and i don't think they like i don't think they. i really mean it's honestly it, wild but... that this was like was this like his second film or his third film his second his movie. second film right he was in his mid-30s kira knightley was like 20 yeah i mean <laughs> it's yeah um and now he is making movies like pan which, what very, a fall from grace. Very like, painful. His next film is a Winston Churchill biopic, and it's like, do we have to? Do we have to? Can uh, you not go? I think I think we've pinpointed the point where he went wrong, and it was when he started making films about men. Yep. Yeah, just don't do it anymore. I mean, Anna Karenina also did not really work, but it was I've not seen Anna Karenina, and I'm not, I'm not serious, because like, he's got, like, it seems like he's kind of 50-50 on good films versus bad films. Yeah, but and Anna Karenina Pan. also, I 
don't really think was his fault because basically like so that they did Anna Karenina and also like the whole thing is set in a theater that's the device but the reason they did it is because they suddenly didn't have any money oh and so had to just like do it all in one like it was it was kind they of had, a, wow that sounds weird yes <laughs> I don't recommend it Aaron Taylor Johnson is very miscast I mean the, I had forgotten that but just thinking of Anna, Aaron Taylor Johnson starring as the romantic lead in a classic historical drama there's a moment where That's she comes like his mustache that is very very disgusting and my whole theater she was like his mustache. yes <gasps> um, really traumatizing I remember this well Donald Gleason is is wonderful, however, as a different character. <laughs> it's really the only endorsement I can give that movie. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Interesting times. Anyway, back to our current film. One of the other really impressive things about this movie is the World War II stuff, which we mentioned a little bit, and which I have kind of been thinking about recently because there's been all this press for Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk movie, uh, which I'm really looking forward to, but I couldn't help thinking watching this. And again, I've seen this movie. It's probably like a fourth or fifth time I've seen it. So it wasn't like a surprise to me, but how is he? And obviously the movie he's going to make will be completely different in tone from the I mean, little. I won't have as many emotions. Because I was just like, you're going to have a really impressive technical set piece, which this film already has and is already well known for. But you're going to have less well executed feelings and interpersonal conflicts. Right. <laughs> because we are both big Christopher Nolan fans, as regular listeners will know. We're also big Christopher Nolan critics. Because he cannot do a lot of things while simultaneously being a genius in several specific areas. And uh, yeah, the Dun- yeah, very curious about the Dunkirk movie. Although I would love to see Joe Wright directing that cast, which includes Tom Hardy and Harry Styles. I mean, that would be a dream. <laughs> yeah, I, that movie's going to be totally fascinating. I can't even imagine. Um, but one of the things I really like about this movie is that I am a total sucker for World War II movies. Like, stick it in front of my eyes and I'll watch it. Like, anything. It's fine. But this movie isn't really a World War II movie per se. Like, it is set in World War II part of it, but it's not... I wouldn't classify it as, like, a World War II film, right? Yeah, I remember World War II is, like, the obstacle that gets in the way of the narrative. Right. And the actual... Like, there's no battle scene or anything, right? But... The actual section that is set during Dunkirk is maybe an eighth of the film. And the whole thing is focused on, like, war is hell. Everyone is dying. There's maybe, like, one mention of the Nazis, and it's in the context of someone's business venture five years before the war starts kind of thing, right? Part of the reason why there's so many World War II movies is because it's very easy to draw kind of hero villain lines you can very easily be like the nazis are bad and this was a good war that we did for a good decision so when people die it's like tragic whereas in this film you don't ever see the ideology of it in fact there's one scene where robbie is walking through the french countryside with two other soldiers and one of them is having this like stupid man in a pub rant about how they should just divide up europe and give germany some empire and britain can keep some other part of the empire and it can be all peaceful and everyone can go home and i'm like that is actually the kind of conversation i would quite like to be seeing more of in this type of story because like nazis are extremely bad and also a lot of the foot soldiers who were fighting against them did not really know or care about that very much and had been conscripted right right? (laughs) and also like the kind of perennial issue of like a lot of the british aristocracy were basically fascists which is cleanly ignored by quite a lot of these dramas as well (laughs) 
Well, and like the what the really famous shot from this movie, which is the really really long tracking shot um, of it's it doesn't only follow James McAvoy walking around the beach. It kind of like he's walking around and then the camera sort of will like intersect with him and then the other soldiers as they're walking. And then it covers a bunch of other stuff. So like, there's a like army chorus singing and then like the horses are being shot and there's all this other stuff going all around. What I like so much about it is that it's showing this sort of just like nonsensical nature of war right like yeah. i mean it's like, not like a kind of a rectangular like, marching group of well-groomed soldiers right. getting onto a boat it's like people who are you know throwing up and dying of sepsis and crying hysterically and lying in the mud and yeah. shooting horses it's and horrible like, like people just kind of like running through randomly and then people singing and there's some there's an almost circus-like atmosphere to it but in the most horrible way possible because it's all people like dying and that sense of just them sort of walking around like what is going on here i don't understand seems to me to be something the movies should have more of as opposed to just people shooting each other right i mean that could be done effectively and also is important to convey but right it's the difference between doing a battle scene and doing a war scene yeah I think there's a reason it's stuck with people so much, and it's not just the fact that technically it's insanely well accomplished. Like, it's much more emotional than just, you know, shooting and blowing things up compared to the old Saving Private Ryan stuff, which I saw around the same time as this movie and have no recollection of whatsoever. (laughs) He picks up his arm at one point. Like, that's the one memory I have of Saving Private Ryan that everyone always remembers. It's so gross. So, yeah. I love that part of this movie. And then the other kind of big thing, obviously, is like the comparison to the other sort of like great house films and TV shows and the class stuff, which I find really fascinating because this is one of the only ones I can think of where it does take place in one of those really impressive, big, like English country homes, but they're not like landed aristocracy per se like they clearly have a lot of money and this is very specified in the book also that they're slightly um insecure about it because they have sort of worked for it a little bit actually and aren't just made of money and i actually find that a lot more interesting than like the i mean i don't like down Abbey in general but that kind of sort of you know like we're just here in our massive it reminded me slightly of i capture the castle i have never consumed i capture the castle in any form so why don't you continue (laughs) (laughs) well i don't really have a great deal more to add because i've not seen the i capture the castle movie in more than 10 years and i've not read the book in like 15 but um (laughs) kind of the idea of i capture the castle is that it is three sisters or maybe two sisters and a mother who live in this very large house and then their eccentric father who sort of lives in like a house next to the house and then they have visitors who are not english aristocracy who are rich american men and it's sort of one of these class eccentricity in britain romance stories it's written as a diary so i think maybe i was thinking at the beginning i was like briny is a lot like the diarist that is writing i capture the castle in the book yeah well and there is this sense of like she is going to Cambridge and then like Robbie is going to Cambridge too in the sense of, and then Brian, wants to be a writer. So there is a sense of the kids, like the girls specifically having like intellectual pursuits, which is yeah. interesting too. Um, 
like they're not all just sitting around with like servants waiting on them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Um but at the same time the demarcation between them and Robbie, who is, you know, the son of the cook or whatever, um, is very clear. And the fact that he gets totally screwed over by them is obviously completely the result of him being less than in that yeah. way. Um, like basically she just says, I saw him do it and he's lived there with them their whole lives and they've paid for his education. And instead of being like, you know, are you sure? Should we think about this a little bit? They're just like, Oh, well, I guess so. <laughs> like, get him out. Like, which, um, is not really very admirable. Yeah. That was one like, of the points where I was sort of thinking that this is the perfect balance of the things that you need to have to make this kind of film succeed with a wider audience and the stuff that it should have from like a critiquing the aristocracy perspective because we are fucking overrun with Downton Abbey type movies and shows and a lot of the time they're either overtly like oh the aristocracy is fine and this was a great period or they're sort of honeyed nostalgia with occasional moments where they acknowledge that Lord Grantham's fucking the maids or whatever Yes. (laughs) (laughs) whereas this was nostalgic because it's a romance movie about looking back at like a perfect moment of the past and there's certain fashion styles and stuff that are always going to be evocative of nostalgia because that's the film diet that we brought up on but you also have the stuff like Robbie being prosecuted with no evidence of rape and then you know being sent out to war and there being these obvious class differences and that sort of thing. And it's not really hammered home. Like, they're not like, here's an issue movie. It's not like, oh, there's this romance which is between the classes and it's the whole focus of the conflict. It's just there. And they make it fairly obvious without it being massively hammered home. Yeah, and I think, well, it allows, obviously, people who don't want to think about that to watch the movie and just be like, oh, her dress is so pretty and it's so sad, which is like fine. People want to just go to the movies, whatever. Um, but it also, I think, makes the critique more interesting. And obviously this is more um, developed in the book, although the book isn't polemical at all. But the fact that he's been sort of let into the club a little bit makes it more dangerous in a way because he clearly has a understanding of the fact that he's not one of them. Like the, first lines of dialogue I th- practically the first lines of dialogue in the movie are um Bryony asking him to I don't know if it's to read a story of hers or come to her play or to do something that he doesn't feel like he should do and like he has the gardening gloves on so there's already like establishing this like barrier between them but he's like friends with Cecilia and he's at Cambridge and the like he's being paid for and so there's this sort of liminal space that he occupies but this as soon as anything you know as soon as, soon as there's any question the right it's like boom you're done which i think is a lot more interesting and damning than they're mean to the servants although obviously those stories when told well are also important because like servants lived miserable lives when they were doing that um but downton abbey for instance does not do a great job of telling that particular story but you're right in terms of it balancing it really well in terms of making it 
palatable for the audience. I think this movie did really, really well at the box office, although I can't remember exactly how well, and I did not look up the figure. We should talk a little bit, too, about the sort of reception of it at the time in terms of, like, awards stuff, because that was this was, like, a big awards movie when it came out, and it was really sort of interesting and funny. I remember... Like, so 2007 was a really interesting year, and it was, it's still my favorite movie year, I think. That in 2014, so I'm looking forward to 2021. Better be, better be good. Um, but I was, again, I was like 17, so this was when I was really learning about movies, and it was a great year for movies, and it was very exciting for me. But um, this got nominated for a bunch of stuff, and then not director. Like, it got nominated for Best Picture back when they only did five, but then it didn't get nominated for Director, which was too bad, because, like, Jason Reitman did for Juno, and I'm sorry, but that's <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> Juno. Um, oh, wow, yeah. yeah. It was the year of Juno. All the teenage girls in my high school were obsessed with Juno and had their little orange Tic Tacs. And... Yeah, I, I watched Ooh. Juno, and I was like, this is reasonably good. Yeah. <laughs> Although it was better than the year when Napoleon Dynamite was like the hugest thing, where I remember watching Napoleon Dynamite and just being baffled because I was just like, this is a bad film. <laughs> I never saw it. I was in the stage where I was like, people like this, so I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> but the biggest sort of thing that always made me a little sad, and I still am a little sad for him, is that this was poor James McAvoy's like big shot at getting nominated, and he didn't because it was such a stacked year that it just was never going to happen for him. And he's so good in this movie. I was he's watching so it and good. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I wish so, he made more good films. It makes me crazy. <laughs> like, so this the nominees that year were uh, Daniel Day-Lewis for There Will Be Blood, which is like the best performance anyone's given in like a decade. Viggo Mortensen in Eastern Promises, who's like, just totally amazing. And then Clooney in Michael Clayton, who was, like, I think McCoy's better than he was in that film, but, like, obviously George Clooney was going to get nominated. Tommy Lee Jones for In the Valley of Ella, which I didn't see, but that was also the year of No Country for Old Men, so, and, like, everyone loves Tommy Lee Jones, so whatever. And then Johnny Depp and Sweeney Todd, who, like, <laughs> sure. more respected in 2007 than he is, for instance, today, but also he's, like, singing in that movie, and they are always impressed by that. So James McAvoy just like got screwed and this was definitely the peak for him, not only physically, but more importantly in terms of his career, which now seems to consist of like X-Men and like really weird Scottish films. No I understand seen. the weird Scottish films, right? That right. makes sense to me. Victor yeah. Frankenstein co-starring Daniel Radcliffe. Very puzzled. Very I don't puzzled. understand. It's, it's really, not like he's spending the money. It's very mystifying to me, actually. And, like, for a while, he was kind of typecast in these, like, nice man roles. So he did this, which is, like, a very interesting part, but he's obviously playing kind of, like, the sympathetic character. And then he did The Last King of Scotland and also a, like, Tolstoy biopic with Christopher Plummer, where he was essentially playing, like, the normal invented person as the interlocutor with the famous person in the biopic being played by the more famous person, which is really not a rewarding situation to be in. Like, you don't want to be playing that dude. And those two movies came out, I think, in pretty 
rapid succession, like not the same year, but I think it may have been successive years. And then obviously like the X-Men films had the sense to make him into a jackass, but like he being cast as professor X, like that's traditionally the like benevolent man role. And I think, and then he started doing some like very small weird movies where he was playing assholes because I think probably just to like do something else but I don't understand. Like, can he just not get his I... next? One of his next movies is a Vin Vendors movie with Alicia Vikander. Well, thank God, because like, <laughs> although Vin Vendors has not made anything very good recently, but it'll be better than the film that he made that I think must have aired at festivals. Because like, my dad actually texted me last week, being like, "M Night Shyamalan's made a good film," and I was like, "If that's the James McAvoy one." That's incorrect. <laughs> Having oh not God. seen this movie, but it's like, it's a film where he plays someone who kidnaps people and has multiple personalities. And like the trailer looked really transphobic and offensive and did not, it looked really trashy. Yes. And I think it got one good review that my dad read. And then generally <laughs> other people did not agree. Yes, <laughs> but I don't I'm know. Sure he's very impressive in it. But... No, no. Yeah, no. I mean, he is, he is the, like, he and Fassbender inject all possible feelings you could have into the terrible dialogue of the X-Men franchise. So if they can right. do that, you can do anything. But um, here's hoping the Vin Benders movie's good. Well, I remember there was, like, a rumor I heard, I wish I, I wish I knew if this were true, about, like, him passing on... The imitation game because I think he was initially attached to that and then the script was better originally and there was another director attached to it initially also I don't remember if I I don't think I ever knew who this was and then I think Harvey Weinstein's people got their hands on it and then like the script changed and then the director and James McAvoy both walked this was a story that I heard somewhere like, not private gossip. Like, this was some story that was sort of floating around. Um, I I wish I knew if this were true, because if so, that would be so amazing. Like, oh my god. And if so, like, smart move, because I know that it got nominated for a bunch of Oscars, but that movie is bad. So, you know, good. Um, and also, like, this is just not the type of thing, even though he hasn't been making great films, like, that biopic is like, no. Yeah, I just wish he would do something better. He's really good. Maybe it's the fact that he's just, like, short and sort of generically attractive. And, like, people don't think of him for, like, their intense, you know, leading man stuff. He's Mr. Anymore. Tumnus. Right? <laughs> oh, my God. I forgot. <laughs> oh I think many God. of our generation were introduced to him as Mr. Tumnus. It's I think not... either you were introduced to him by Shameless or Mr. Tumnus, and it's two very divergent... <laughs> it was Mr. Thomas for me, and I definitely thought he was attractive as that goat. <laughs> so did many people, I believe. Oh, so many years ago. What a different time. <laughs> oh, oh boy. That was not where I expected this podcast to wind up. But on that note. Yes. So uh, next week... We will probably be putting this out midweek sometime because we are going to be at the London Film Festival on the weekend and we'll be watching as many things as possible and then we'll be reporting back 
So it will depend on when we can. Yes, we're going to watch a selection of films. And uh, hopefully some of them will be exciting and good. Yes, so fingers crossed. We will have some things to tell you. Otherwise, I think that's it. Thank you for listening. As ever, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes or whatever podcast service you use. It's how we find new listeners. Uh, and otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, and at Tumblr on overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.